written to you. Second Chronicles chapter 29, our journey through the scriptures on Sunday evening, Genesis to Revelation. If you're here with us without a Bible, and men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just wave to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And usually cover two or three chapters on a Sunday night, and uh, that's a lot to cover if you don't aren't able to look down and read and follow along. And so a Bible will be very handy. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take the one that's given to you home. It's yours. Well, we come to chapter 29 of Second Chronicles, and in chapter 28, we come to the end of what was just a terrible, disastrous, ungodly reign of an evil man by the name of Ahaz. And so, uh, one of the worst kings in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. And just when you look at his, how the terrible damage he did to the nation, you would think to yourself, oh no, there are going to be generations pulling out from this nosedive that they've taken. But a wonderful thing God had in, in, uh, um, in place. It's funny, you know, we, all we can see is just, for the most part, just, you know, physically what's in front of us. We don't know what comes tomorrow, next week, next year, if the Lord tarries, any of those things. And so often we think, oh, the, you know, the die has been cast. This is what we're going to be forever. This is what the nation is going to be forever. And wickedness has too great of a hold upon it to ever break free again. It just takes one man called by God to make the changes. And so he knew a man by the name of Hezekiah, a godly son of a very, very wicked king, was going to come on the scene. We begin to study Hezekiah's life. One of the great kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, probably one of the top three or four kings uh, that they ever had. We're given kind of the vital statistics related to his reign, the encapsulation. Uh, he became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. It is interesting, um, you know, the, the older you get, I'm not getting older, but you're getting older. And, but the older you get, you know, the more hesitant you are sometimes to think that, a, you know, younger aged people are capable of having something uh, significant put into their hands. And one of the reasons is, is that so often... When you reach, for instance, my age, and I think back about when I was 25 years old, and I think, oh, my. And uh, I don't know a lot, but experience has taught me a lot, and walking with the Lord has taught me a lot. But God is a great risk taker, and it's no risk to him. He knows everything, doesn't he? But he really, what he entrusts to younger people, the opportunity that he gives to them to do something great or uh, to fumble it away. It's a person's choice. You think about the disciples that he chose, those 12, how young they were. I mean, John was probably, when he, Jesus started his public ministry, 16, somewhere right in there, no older than 19, all of them in their young 20s. And he ascends into heaven and the whole thing's turned over to them and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really something that God, uh, you know, no wonder why he says, don't let any man despise your youth. We walk with God, we live for God, live close to him, and uh, he's going to make something of our lives. A very young man, we see over and over again, they came to reign so often, 
relatively young. Uh, what was the youngest one? Nine years old or something? You know, he's wondering whether he's going to have uh, Pop-Tarts or uh, cinnamon toast for breakfast, the biggest decision he's making in life. And, uh, and yet God put a godly man around him to nurture him through that season to adult life. So he was 25 years old, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of uh, Zechariah. Important to realize that it, early in Hezekiah's reign, we don't, uh, the writer of the book of Second Chronicles doesn't really elaborate on it, but it's, it's good for us to know the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen now to Assyria. And Assyria is uh, kind of massing at the borders of Judah even now, a threat to their existence. So that's kind of the whole tone of things that are, are going on. In other words, Hezekiah comes in to reign. He's following a very wicked father. And he sees the northern kingdom of Israel, who for 200 years has just been following all kinds of wickedness, not one good king engaged in idolatry. And the whole southern kingdom of Judah has seen this is where this leads you're going to go into captivity like God said. You're going to go into bondage over this disobedience and all. And, and so they've seen the consequences of it. And so it's kind of a wake-up call to everyone because so much sin was in Judah at that time under King Ahaz. Everybody realized, hey, we deserve judgment as much as the northern kingdom of Israel deserved judgment. And so that's kind of the vibe of what's going on in uh, the nation as he begins uh, his reign. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And so he did right like David, and David was uh, clearly the best king that Israel ever had. Uh, there's a better king that's coming, Jesus, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but that he's in a very um, select category. So David, in terms of just purely human, uh, the, the great, great king, and uh, only three kings of Judah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and, and Josiah, Hezekiah here, uh, four total were given this kind of a, con a commendation that they did uh, as uh, according to all that his father David had done. I want us to notice again that Hezekiah was a great son of what was up to this point the most wicked king in Judah's History, And I want to make the point again, and I will all the way through this historical book, though I've already made it ten times. We have a good king following a very evil man. And a man that had filled all of Jerusalem and all of Judah with idolatry. And here was a man that was able to come in, followed his father, but chose not to follow in the wickedness of his father's footsteps. And he had the ability, the choice to make, and God gives, gave him the choice. We have the choice to make as well. The ability to say no to what he, had been exampled before him in life and to say yes to God. You know, sometimes you get raised in a goofy home. It's just a mess. And you get, you get exposed to all kinds of wrong things. And sometimes even before you even know how to tie your shoes just about, you're already in bondage to sin and all kinds. It's, it's just the way that it is. I mean, you look, at, you look at what people are doing in the culture and you just say, where are the parents? And you realize that the parents are like Ahaz, not everyone. 
And, I mean, you can have kids go sideways out of very good homes. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But you have a increasingly the goofiness of our culture. You have people being raised in Ahaz households. You think about how not just Ahaz for you know 3,000 years ago, but how many kids are being raised in homes where you look at the idolatry that's worshipped in that house. Look at the ungodliness that's in that house that people are then tapped into. And, and, and it's, it's a mess. And it's just good to be reminded that because Jesus Christ entered into human history, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. And he's provided a salvation for us that includes God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and making us into a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. This is what he offers to anyone. And then a life is completely changed. And then all of that bondage is broken. And now I have the ability to live a completely different kind of life. And we need to hear that. You say, well, you know, most of the people that come to this church, they're not in that kind of a circumstance. Well, you know, we don't know where people come from. But it's good for us to know that, to at least tell other people about that in, in the place that they're in. It breaks my heart how many, how early, how young people are addicted to idolatry, into sin, uh, years and years and years before they're ever exposed to the gospel and to hope. And here is the hope, a, a, good, a good and great and godly king following a terrible terrible father and fatherly example. I think it's important also to realize that Hezekiah probably had a a good mother. Her father, uh, who was Hezekiah's grandfather on his mother's side, his name is Zachariah. He was a very, very good, very godly man. And uh, so he probably was exposed through his mother to the two extremes. I don't know how many of you raised in, in a household where you had one Uh, mom or dad given to debauchery and then the other one loved God and walked with God. Sometimes it works out. Some people get married and they're doing this and doing that and then one of them gets saved and then the kids start coming and they got this two things happening in front. But what what, uh, Hezekiah teaches us and it's an important lesson uh, for mothers, especially if you sit here tonight and you are a mother who is married to a wicked man. And you say, there's no hope for my children. They're, they're lost. They're gone because of, of his wickedness. We don't know that. I think one of the most powerful things in the whole wide world is a godly mother. You, what kid can erase a godly mother out of their mind? They can't do it. They may choose the way of the father in this circumstance. Sometimes it's flipped. They may choose the way of the father for a time, but they know what's right and they know what's wrong because they've seen both of those things modeled all of their life. And so the power of a godly father or a godly mother in that circumstance never underestimate it. God used it, I'm sure, in Hezekiah's uh, life. During his reign of, of Hezekiah, Isaiah was ministering as prophetic ministry as well as uh, 
Micah. So Hezekiah here, he becomes king, does what writes in the sight of the Lord. And in the first month of, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. So here he is. He's got problems in all directions. They got idolatry anywhere you want to look. You've got people in bondage to sin and wickedness in all directions in Judah, among God's people who are to be a different people in the whole wide world. You've got Assyria at your front uh, frontier that has got you next on their menu to take over. He's got so many problems everywhere, but the very first thing that he tackles is reopening that temple and reestablishing the worship of God in Jerusalem once again. And he begins a campaign of let's put God first. That's first things first. Everything else can wait. Now, that's a remarkable thing for a 25-year-old to do. That's remarkable wisdom for them to do. To come in, all of the things that have to be pressing him from all directions. Got to do this. Got to do that. This is priority one. This is the first five things we need to do. And he says, no, the first thing we need to do is we've got to get that temple, which represents the presence of God in our midst, cleaned up and get worship restored back in into the nation. And so he recognized that in doing this, he's communicating to the nation that the spiritual and the moral health of the nation is priority one to him. And his priorities are absolutely outstanding. This guy, he looks around, he says, okay, this is not a time for half measures. Our survival is at stake here. We've got to get back to God. And so he opened up the doors of the house of the Lord. His father had closed up those doors. He had just, he had just nailed the temple shut because he was engaged in the worship of anything and everything but the Lord. So he just closed up the doors, uh, uh, boarded them up of the temple, and then he filled it with all kinds of just junk. It became a storage building or it became like a, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, maybe even just a place to throw garbage. I remember one time we had the privilege of being in Moscow, or maybe it was up in uh, St. Petersburg, and uh, we went through this incredible church that was uh, it was St. Petersburg, and the Church of the Blood or something, and you go in, and the entire interior of the church is done in tile, mosaics. Um, just these little tiny pieces and some of the most unbelievable uh, scenes from the Bible done in mosaic on the walls and on the roof. I mean, you could literally stand, you could stay in there an entire day and go through and watch the Bible unfold all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Incredible to look at it. And when you saw how these artists, whoever they were that did this work, when you saw the different scenes of the Bible and how they portrayed them, you, you realized this person knew God. This person understood the message of that event in the Bible because they're communicating that message from that scene. Communists took over the church and they just filled it with garbage. 
had no sense of the value of, of that building. And now, of course, it's been restored to its original purposes and to let tourists like me in and to stand in awe of it. But that's what Ahaz had done. He had just probably kind of thumbing his nose at the Lord and, and, uh, and, and closing up his place of worship. And so he then he brought in the priests and the Levites. He gathered them in the east square of the temple in front of the temple porch or the temple entrance. And he said to them, hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish or the garbage from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. And so he begins by calling on them to sanctify themselves and then to sanctify uh, the temple. The priests were and the Levites were to remain uh, ceremonially clean. They were to be like they were supposed to be on duty all the time. So there were certain rituals they went through. All of these rituals pointed to Christ. There were ceremonial cleansings that they went through, all of this uh, kind of thing. And it's very, very clear as Hezekiah exhorts them here that during the days of Ahaz, they had become, these religious leaders had become very, very lax in obeying God's word uh, related to what they were supposed to be doing and the influence they were supposed to be having in that, uh, in that nation. The Bible teaches for us as Christians, and it's an important lesson, no matter how bad the culture gets around us, no matter how evil it gets, no matter how idolatrous it gets, we do not live down to the level of this culture. The standard is God's word. If you have this deal where we say, all right, we're going to be separated from the world uh, a distance of a foot. We're going to you know, stay separated from the world. And here you've got the world and, and we're maintaining this separation. But if the world is going along like this and it's morally going down like this and we're just maintaining a separation based upon the, what the world is, we're going to be doing stuff as Christians that nobody can believe that a Christian would do and consider themselves to be a Christian. The Bible is the standard for how we conduct ourselves. And here is this place where they just decided we'll just be slightly holier than the pagan nation that Judah has become. And then when the time came and God made a change in the nation like this and he needed Levites and priests to be ready as quick as this king was to make changes, they weren't ready to do it. They weren't ceremonially clean. They weren't right. They didn't have their heads screwed on straight. They didn't have their hearts screwed on straight. The Bible says, as Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Every single one of us as Christians, no matter what the world is doing around us, God should be able to say to us, I want you to do this. This is my call upon your life. This is my call for what I want you to do in the next five minutes. And we should be right with God and able to, to take that jump and to do that. And so it's important. Here's a whole group of priests, just like you and I, same tendency. And so we, we, we keep the standard of our life, the Bible no matter what the standard is in the world and even in professing uh, Christianity. And so they should have been ready and they weren't ready 
And Hezekiah has to spend some time getting them ready. And in fact, it's going to cause him to have to delay uh, the keeping of the Passover for a month. And the priests and the Levites bore some responsibility for that. And he went on in verse 7. He said, they also have shut up the doors of the vestibule, uh, put out the lamps. They've not burned incense or holy burnt offerings or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. So God's everything about God's been neglected. And because of this, therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, to jeering, as you see with your eyes. And so we remember under Ahaz, they were defeated not only by major enemies, but even minor kind of tribe enemies that surrounded them because it was God's judgment upon them. It talks about jeering and all. In other words, the whole world had lost respect uh, for them. And here they were. They were supposed to be something unique in the world, God's people in the world. When they became like the world and, and then the consequences of it, nobody had any respect for it. Nobody has any respect for a Christian like that either. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons, our daughters and our wives are in captivity. And now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may be, turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister to him and to burn incense. And so he calls upon them now to uh, to take their place and and cease the negligence of their their calling and become the spiritual influence, a godly influence that God had called them to be there within within uh, the nation. And so priority one, he's saying, let's get right with God. And he's really wonderful. Isn't it nice to hear a politician talk like this? Is it just me? Fabulous. He sounds more like a prophet than a king. Oh, so just dealing with a longing in my heart. I know Jesus is coming back and we'll hear that from his lips. And so he calls on them and the Levites then in response, they arose. Mayhap the son of Amasai and Joel, the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites, of the sons of Merai, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehelahel, of the Gershonites, uh, Joah, the sons of Zema, and Eden, the son of Joah, of the sons of uh, Elisaphan, uh, Shimri, and uh, too many vowels. That's a scrabble word right there. Okay, I play uh, G-E-L of the sons of Asaph, and I get double, uh, double points for the J. And uh, Zechariah and Mataniah of the sons of Heman, uh, Jehiel, Shimei, the sons of uh, Jedathun, uh, Shimeiah, and Uziel. And they gathered their brethren, they sanctified themselves, did as they were commanded, and they went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. And then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, 
And they brought out all of the debris, all of the garbage that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites then took it and they carried it to the brook Kidron and they threw it out there to all of this uh, rubbish out into that valley that lies on the eastern side uh, of, of the Temple Mount. Uh, area. So they began that cleansing and they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord, which is kind of the porch that leads into the temple. And so they sanctified the house of the Lord eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. That's a lot of garbage. That's a lot of neglect. I bet they were pretty embarrassed. This happened under our watch. We've got one lifetime to be faithful to God with. And here we took a political leader, not a descendant of of Aaron, not a priest, not a Levite. It took a political leader to come. And then to make us carry the garbage out, that we didn't make a stand against it being put in there. But to their credit, they did it and took them eight days to clean the stuff out of the temple itself. And it took them another eight days to clean all of the junk that was in the courtyards of the temple. And then they went to King Hezekiah and they said, we have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings with all its articles or everything that's left of the furnishings. We have ceremonially cleansed those and the table of the showbread with all of its articles. And moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz uh, in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, uh, we have prepared and sanctified. And there they are before the altar of the Lord. And then Hezekiah rose early and he gathered the rulers of the city and he went up now to this cleansed house of the Lord. And so he's going to restore uh, worship there at the temple. Can't wait to do it. Going to do it early. The best worship of the Lord really happens early. And so as soon as that thing is cleansed, he's ready to roll. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs. Seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And then he commanded the priests and the sons of Aaron to offer these sin offerings on the altar of the Lord. So we see seven, 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 seven. In the Bible, seven is known as the number of completion. There's seven days in the week. There's seven uh, colors in the rainbow. And so by offering seven of these various sacrifices, seven each of these animals for their sin, it was communicating to God. We are this is a complete repentance on our part of our sin and of the sin of our fathers. And so they killed the bulls and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. And likewise, they killed the rams and they sprinkled the blood on the altar, sanctifying the altar. And they also killed the lambs and they sprinkled the blood on the altar. And then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And so uh, now uh, in laying the hands upon the animal before it would be sacrificed was a symbol of transference of sin, a substitution for sin. And so in the same way as Jesus was upon the cross, all of our sin 
was upon him. So when they lay their hands on that animal, it was the communication. There was the re- God was reinforcing in their minds. Here is the death of the innocent for the sin of the guilty. And that, God, and that, tra- and that the sin of the guilty is being transferred to the sacrifice of the innocent. All of which is just a type and a very small picture of what Jesus did on the cross for us. He died as our substitute in our place, and our sin was transferred to him. He who knew no sin became sin, the Bible says, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so these beautiful Old Testament pictures, they didn't know the way that we know, able to realize how fully this is all a picture of Christ. And so the priests, they killed them. And they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offerings and the sin offering be made for all Israel. So again, we see the burnt offering, which was an offering that symbolized total consecration because the sacrifice was completely burned. Uh, when it was offered to the Lord. So they're communicating here as they come to the Lord. We repent of our sin and, and even more than repent of our sin and the offering of the burnt offerings. We fully consecrate our lives to you. Our lives that were once given to sin, we give them now to, use for, to you to use for your holy uh, purposes. And, and so he stationed the Levites and the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments and harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets, and the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. And so here's, here's a guy. There's a lot to like about this guy. So he comes out and he says, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's thinking this whole thing through. He said, all right, we're going to go do this. We're going to offer the sacrifices and everything. But, man, it sure would be nice to hear some worship down at the temple again. He'd never heard it. The whole time he's been alive, his dad is just trashed. He doesn't even, I mean, he's read about the Psalms of David and Asaph and all of these things. He'd never heard those songs sung the way that David and Asaph and the prophets by God had indicated was to accompany the worship of the Lord. And so he said, listen, I want to hear that going on too, and I want God's people to hear that too. And so this uh, great uh, worship that was being offered up to the Lord as a part of it. And Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offerings um, on the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord began and the trumpets. And I don't know how you use trumpets in worship. Um, so bagpipes, I understand. Uh, but uh, trumpets, it's a cultural thing for me. So I guess I remember Phil Driscoll. He, did he do a trumpet thing? I guess he did. For those of you who are 180 years old and uh, older, you might remember him. And so then the, the burnt offerings, the song of the Lord began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all this music starts and it's just great worship and all the assembly worship. The singers sang and the trumpeters trumpeted. That's just how it should be. You shouldn't have trumpeters singing and uh, singers trumpeting. And so all of this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Just beautiful. Everybody's got their place in it. Everybody's just expressing worship to the Lord. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him then bowed and worshipped. So here, this is just this great experience. 
We're using the temple again. Worship of God's been reinstituted. We're being able to worship the Lord in song. And as they're just in the middle of it, they just bow down and they worship the Lord. There's a lot of different postures you can take in worshiping the Lord. We see in the Bible sometimes people would kneel. Sometimes they would stand. Sometimes they would stand and raise their hands. We see them getting on their knees and bowing down. There's a lot of different postures that you can take. The most important thing about worship, Jesus said that uh, God is seeking people to worship him who worship him in spirit and in truth. In reality, the, the, the big thing is, what's the condition of my heart? Am I engaged with God and am I engaged in with what I'm singing to God? And then whatever posture my body needs to take that's appropriate for what I'm feeling between God and myself and, and what I'm communicating to God, then that's, uh, then that's okay with God. Now, around here, we, we, have to know, we don't want people running up and down the aisles with banners or anything like that or uh, standing on your head or anything like that. It's anything that draws attention to you. There's a lot of other things that we realize the kind of great freedom in worship. The main thing that God is looking at is our heart. And if this other posture is the posture that communicates that, then all of it blesses the Lord. And, of course, bowing down is this great uh, symbol and and communication of, of the fact that he is king and we are his subjects. And therefore, moreover, King Hezekiah and the, leaders, they, uh, and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they began to sing worship songs from the book of Psalms. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. And then Hezekiah answered and he said, now that you have consecrated yourself to the Lord, Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. So they've offered up all of these offerings, sin offerings, burnt offerings, on behalf of the nation uh, to cleanse the altar. And what Hezekiah now does is he speaks to the people and he invites now individual people to bring their sacrifices for, forward to then be offered to the Lord. And so for them to engage in the worship service and express personally and individually their own worship of the Lord. So you had people that were there that they looked at everything that had happened and they said, all of that expresses my heart. I am glad for all of that. But I want to make a personal sacrifice to the Lord to express my personal devotion uh, to him and my love for him. And so Hezekiah knew that that was in the hearts of the people. And so he gives this invitation for them to bring these offerings into the house of the Lord to be sacrificed on their behalf to the Lord. And boy, the assembly, they took them up on it. So the assembly brought in the sacrifices and thank offerings as many as were of a willing heart. They brought burnt offerings. There are no constraint or anything here. This is just pure, holy, beautiful, uh, God person worship that's happening here, an expression of that and the relationship between uh, men and women and their God. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. 
lambs. All of these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated things were 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep. And so as all of these offerings, people are just coming forward with all these animals that they want to sacrifice to the Lord to express their devotion to the Lord. And we're told that the priests were too few. And so they could not skin all of the burnt offerings. Again, a sad thing. They had failed to, to stay true to their calling because of the wickedness of King Ahaz. So they just said, all right, we're just going to go back and uh, become jewelers or we're going to become, you know, whatever it might be. And to just go into the secular world and we're just going to work and throw off God's calling. And uh, they didn't keep themselves uh, uh, pure uh, ceremonially. And so here it catches up to them. So there weren't enough priests who were ceremonially clean that is right with God to then uh, skin all of the burnt offerings in order to offer them to the Lord because that was the responsibility of the priests. And therefore, their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. And so it was unusual for the Levites to help the priests with the sacrifices in this way, but God allowed it because the hearts were right, and, but it was a black eye really for the priests, and it really uh, showed that they had really been unfaithful. And also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. And so this great experience of the people just loving the Lord and wanting to express it, and so the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. And so in this way, uh, worship services were reestablished in the first month of his reign. He got right on this. And in the first month of his reign uh, there in the city of, of Jerusalem. And then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took uh, place so suddenly. And so even Hezekiah and the leaders recognized that this is a God thing uh, because even though this was on our heart and all, only God knew that there was this kind of love for God hidden away in the wickedness of the age. And as soon as they got a chance to express their love for the Lord, boom, they took advantage of it. And so everybody was excited about it, the, right, the righteous. Well, imagine just 17 days earlier, the temple, the symbol of the presence of your God. Say you love God. Jerusalem, 2,700 uh, years ago. You get a new king, you don't know what you're going to get out of this king. What's he going to be? Chip off the old block? Seventeen days later, that temple is open. Sacrifices are happening the priesthood is being put into its proper place. Everything has turned so quickly. You can imagine what it did to the heart of the righteous in the land. And Hezekiah then, he sent to all Israel and Judah, and he also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, two tribes that were up in the north, northern kingdom of Israel, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Now, this is fascinating. So this guy's not done. So we got this temple opened up, and, and now he wants to keep the Passover. The Passover hasn't been kept in Jerusalem for about 200 years. He comes on the scene, and he wants to keep the Passover. 
I mean, don't you like guy, people with some vision? <laughs> people that want to tackle big things for God? Things I mean, this looks like it's impossible. He says, all right, we've got the temple opened up. We've got these things going. What's keeping us from having the Passover? We're a month too late. Rats. And that wasn't his fault because he becomes king. In the very first month that he's king, should the Passover was supposed to be kept. But there's no time to do it because there's no temple that's in any kind of condition, no fault of his own to begin the Passover. He gets that cleaned up and says, all right, let's do the Passover a month later than usual and and uh, see if the Lord will honor it. And it wasn't an extraordinary thing. The Lord did allow the Passover to occur in the second month of the Jewish religious calendar. It occurred in the second month if there was an issue of uncleanness or someone was far away and they couldn't get there uh, on time. In other words, if there was a legitimate reason for not being able to keep the Passover at the appointed time in the first month, it could be kept in the second month. Well, there was legitimate reason. We've just been freed from bondage and sin. And uh, so he was trusting uh, very much in the grace of God on this, but it wasn't unprecedented. God gave room for this kind of thing, even in his word. And so he sends word all the way, not only all through Judah, we're going to keep the Passover, but he sends messengers up into Israel who've been conquered now by the Assyrians. But apparently sections of the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, because of their location, they weren't completely conquered by the Assyrians at that point in time. So they had some autonomy. And so he says, all right, let's get word to anyone up in the north uh, about this Passover. If we're going to have a Passover, then we ought to invite everybody, right? And, and so he wants to invite everybody. Talk about a big heart for God's people. Southern kingdom of Judah had been virtually at war with another northern kingdom of Israel for 200 years since the time of Solomon's death. And all of the idolatry up there and all of the wickedness that had come out of it even affected the nation of the southern kingdom of Judah. He says, we're going to do a Passover. Let's invite them to come. They're, God, they're, they're our brethren. They're our blood. Let's invite them to come and see if they'll come. Big heart. Big heart for God. Let's see what God does. And so the king and the leaders and all the assembly of Jerusalem, they had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month because they couldn't keep it at the regular time the first month because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people had time to gather together in Jerusalem. And uh, so the matter pleased the king and all of the assembly. And so they resolved to make a proclamation through all Israel from Beersheba to Dan, uh, the southernmost and the northernmost uh, kind of significant cities of Judah and Israel. And so they send them out all the, the whole uh, length of the land that they should come and keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed Manner And the runners went throughout all of Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel, repent, <laughs> which is what return means here. Return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, and then he will return to the rem- he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped 
from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespass against the Lord God of their fathers so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Let's stop the downward spiral, the downward cycle. Let's change uh, things now. And what better way to change the downward spiral than to keep the Passover, the greatest feast of the Jewish religious calendar. He said, now do not be stiff-necked. We don't even know what that means sometimes, but it doesn't sound good, does it? Hey, quit being stiff-necked. Well, it means to be rebellious, the deliberately rebellious and disobedient to God's word. No, no getting their head turned around the right way. And so he said, do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourself to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever. Serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, and he will not turn his face from you if you will return to him. So there's still, God wants a relationship with you. There's grace here if you'll turn to him. I hope everybody in the room understands that tonight. That if we'll turn back to God, if we've been away from him, there is grace to turn uh, back to him. Now, sometimes we talk about uh, cheap grace. We talk about sloppy agape. Um, Cheap grace is when someone like me gets up and says, God will be gracious to you, to someone who's in rebellion to him. But I don't make a call to repent of sin or to confess sin and depart from sin. That's cheap grace. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. This isn't cheap grace because he's extending the grace of God to these people with a call to also repent and abandon their sin and return to the Lord with a full heart. That's where the hope is found. Without repentance, without change, it's just you're under the hammer of God. You know, nothing's going to change no matter what preacher says what to you. Repentance allows God to bless us the way that he wants to. And so the sinners, they pa- uh, the runners, got sinners on my mind here. So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, the reaction that they received up in the northern area of Israel is that they laughed at them and they mocked them. Nevertheless, that's an underlinable word. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So the invitation goes out. And most of the people just laughed at them in their face. You're going to keep the Passover, return to God, you're a kook. But there were some who were waiting to hear that invitation. And here's the significance of it. The Passover and the celebration of the Passover, was a, it was a celebration of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And so it represents deliverance. It it represents God's salvation. Egypt is a symbol of the world. So it's a symbol of God saving his people, bringing his people out of the world, redeeming them, delivering them. And the Passover is just a picture or a shadow or a type 
of what Jesus would do on the cross and that Jesus would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, die upon the cross, become our Passover Lamb, Paul said to the, Lamb, Paul said to the, to the Corinthians, in order to deliver us not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the greater bondage of sin. And so here is this invitation that goes out, and they just mock it. But there were other people who were waiting to hear. And the same thing is true related to the substance of which this is a shadow. We take and we extend the offer of the cross. Jesus' death upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins, to be redeemed and to be saved out of sin. And candidly, the majority of people laugh and they mock the invitation. Jesus said it himself. That's just the way that it is. But some listen and some receive. And that's all we need to know. It is worth the rejection of a hundred mockers, though it's painful, for the one who is waiting to hear and when they hear, they receive that good news into their life. It's an important encouragement to evangelism to realize that. The fact that we sit in this room tonight and we have not yet been raptured into heaven is an indication of the fact that the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. It means that there are still more people that when they hear the gospel, they will receive that into their lives, despite the general mocking of the gospel and the mocking of God and the culture. And so that's what gets us through. It certainly has an impact on me. And I'm very sensitive. And I really am. I'm just like all of us. None of us likes to be mocked or to be scorned or ridiculed. So it's all there. But I set my mind on the ones that were just like me, that when we hear, we'll glom onto that and make it our own. And so that's where we have to keep our focus. So even though most of the people mocked the whole idea and scorned it, Hezekiah didn't allow that to affect him uh, in any way. They were going to have this Passover. And so the hand of, the, of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. So in the southern kingdom of Judah, everybody was all in on this. They were excited to do it. No mocking, no scorning. Now, many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. And so, so you look and you say, well, I thought we were just talking about the Passover. Now you're throwing another feast in on me? I can only learn one feast a night. What are you doing here doubling up on me? So the Feast of Passover occurred on a particular day that God assigned. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was, was right up against it. It was the seven days that followed the Passover. So the Passover was, uh, spoke of, speaks of our salvation as Christians. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what the Jews would do is they would remove all of the leaven from their houses. And leaven is a symbol of sin in the Bible. So it was God's way of communicating, reminding his own people of the fact that not only are we to be a saved people as Christians, but we are also to be a holy people 
that our lives are to also be cleansed of sin and we're to live a different kind of life. And so he butted both of those feasts up together because they both should be uh, occurring at the same time in our lives. And so here was the, the reason these two were linked and they were being kept in that second month. And they arose and they took away the altars that were in Jerusalem and they took away all the incense altars. And so they did another kind of cleansing of Jerusalem in the area, not just of any kind of idolatry that was in the area of the temple and the courtyards, but in Jerusalem altogether, everything that they could find that was idolatrous, uh, they uh, took and they uh, cast it in the brook Kidron. What's the sense of keeping the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread if my life doesn't reflect the thing that it's communicating and that I'm celebrating with God? It's like, what's the use of coming to church and listening and doing and everything that we do and all if I have no interest in walking with him or obeying what it is that he has to say? And, and so they come in, they say, we want to do this, but we don't want it to be backwards. We don't want to keep these feasts knowing that the whole city is full of this junk. We'll get rid of the junk and then we'll do it. And then we can fully enjoy the worship of the Lord. And then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed. They sanctified themselves and they brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. This is interesting, isn't it? They're ashamed. The religious leaders of the nation. And for the 16 years of Ahaz's reign, and I'm not saying that there wasn't a risk to stand for God in his reign. There was. There's a risk to live for Christ all over this world. But they weren't faithful to what God had called them to do. And here comes the Passover. And these people in Judah come streaming out from all directions. And they see the spiritual hunger that was there all along. But the people lacked godly leadership to express it. And they were shamed because their calling by God was to provide that godly leadership, even if it meant their life. They were supposed to do it. It isn't unlikely that even up to this point, as Hezekiah, 25 years old, what? And here you've got maybe some 60, 70, 80, 40 year old priests and whatever, and say, all right, here comes this 25 year old, and what does he know? And you, I've seen kings like this, they get Christians like this, they come out, and you know, for the first two months they go like maniacs, and then they calm down, and they become lukewarm like all of the rest of us. And probably some of them standing off just saying, okay, this is just a big show. It's not going to get any traction. And they see how hungry the people were to do this. And they see that here is a king that has provided leadership that they were supposed to provide. And it shamed them. And, they, and, and the, as a result of their shame, they got on board with what Hezekiah was doing because they recognized the hand of God in it. So they sanctified themselves and they brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. And they stood in their place according to their custom 
according to the law of Moses, uh, the man of God. And so the priests, they sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them uh, to the Lord. For a multitude of people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, came from the northern tribes of, of Israel, had not cleansed themselves, made themselves ceremonially clean before they came uh, to the Passover, and yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. So here's what's going on here. may not be of any interest to you, but it fascinates me. And I've got the mic. So you've got all of these people coming from the north. And, I mean, here they are 200 years. Their religious leaders have failed them. By and large, there were faithful prophets. But their political leaders have completely failed them. They the ceremonially clean, ceremonially, you know, I mean, they don't know anything about that. They don't know about clean, ceremonial, uh, otherwise or what. They don't know any of this stuff. All they know is they got an invitation to come to the Passover. So they come to the Passover and they aren't ceremonially clean, which was required for them to offer their own Passover lamb because each family would offer the Passover lamb to the Lord. But they couldn't do it because they weren't cleansed. And so what the Levites did, they came in, they were ceremonially clean. And so they offered on behalf of these families and then allowed the families to then eat their portion of that Passover lamb. So a lot of beautiful grace going on in here. It isn't exactly what God's uh, word had called them to do. But then notice the heart of Hezekiah. He prayed for them and he said concerning these, they were doing the very best that they knew how. May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And so Hezekiah steps in. You've got people going, but can we do this? And some people saying, yeah, God's got the grace for that and all. Hezekiah steps in and he says, listen, I'll offer up this prayer. God will understand that these people are coming to him the best way that they know how to come to him. And he'll honor that. And we're told the Lord listened to Hezekiah and he healed the people. And so the children of Israel who were uh, present at Jerusalem, they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. I think that's uh, a gift for understatement. I would, I'd give you ten bucks if I could be there. And the Levites and the priests, they praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. I want some of you to notice that word loud. Um, that's a biblical concept right there on things. In fact, you can circle that right there. They got excited in there. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all of the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord uh, God of their fathers. And then the whole assembly, they agreed uh, to keep the feast another seven days. Let's do it again. And they kept the feast another seven days with gladness. Well, you've got a problem if you're going to extend that feast for seven days. And that is, you're going to run out of food and sacrifices. Well, Hezekiah, the king, I mean, he's so excited about all of this that from his own personal 
uh, he and the leaders, they supplied to the assembly a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep. Gives you an idea of the size of the crowd. That's a big barbecue. And the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls, ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. And the whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and Levites, all of the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. How wonderful that must have been to be together. All of these people. You're from where? You're from the tribe of Manasseh? You're from the tribe of Zebulun and Ephraim? You guys have been pagans for 200 years. You've out-paganed the pagans. And then here they are individually, though. God doesn't judge the whole big gigantic. I mean, it's individual people make their decisions. And here they are, all of them together, worshiping the Lord the way it was intended to be. It must have really been something uh, to be a part of that. And, and so all of that excitement that was there, there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And then the priests, the Levites, arose. They blessed the people and uh, probably pronouncing that uh, king, uh, priestly blessing upon them. The Lord bless thee and keep thee, make his face to shine upon thee and so forth. They blessed the people, uh, for preparing them for their departure. Their voice was heard and their prayer uh, came up. Uh, to his holy dwelling place in heaven. And so the people were dismissed with a prayer by the religious leaders. Man. If you get a DVD of this on eBay, would you buy it for me? So I could see it. That must have really been something to be a part of. Here you just one man. Love for God. Not even a priest. Not even a Levite. And in two months... Everything changes. Just fabulous. Gives us hope. Let's stand together and we'll pray. And I say it gives us hope because we know the greater king is coming. And he's going to establish his reign. Perfect reign of righteousness on the earth for a thousand years. Jesus at his second coming. That's going to be really something to be involved in, and we will as Christians. If you stand here tonight and you have never confessed your sin to God, asked for his forgiveness, and put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that. That's how you begin a relationship with God. And uh, there'll be men and women up in front who would love to pray with you uh, for that to happen. And so you don't get to heaven by sitting in a church, coming into a church, listening to a Bible study, um, singing worship songs off of uh, the screens that are up in front. And, and it's important in this culture to make, make that clear because sometimes we think we come to, into church, I'm a good person, that gets me in. That's how, how we get in. We get in through Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, the Bible says, except by him. Jesus said that, except through me. And so come forward after the service. Receive him as your Savior. And, of course, if you need prayer for anything tonight, they'd love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you so much to just be able to head through these couple of chapters and to just savor. We don't know in the measure that they did um, to have righteousness 
be quite abandoned on that level to have a, a temple uh, hammered shut. But we see a lot of doors being closed to the gospel and the things of you. We see enough in our culture, Lord, that makes us appreciate the great experience that these people were enjoying. And we pray for our own lives tonight as we think about these priests and these Levites and how difficult it must have been for them when someone finally made a stand to be faced with their own unfaithfulness. And Lord, we just freshly surrender ourselves to you tonight. Whatever your calling is upon our lives, we freshly commit to that calling and to commit by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to make a stand and to live a life in this culture and in this world that looks like your word and not like a watered-down version of the world. And, Lord, so we want this passage to just have that impact upon us. Lord, our lives are yours, bought and paid for. And, Lord, we just commit to every plan that you have for us because we never know who the next Hezekiah is or what you're going to do with our lives. We just ask that your will would be accomplished in us, that you would bring glory to yourself through our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel, would you close us?